Hi, welcome to yet another episode of the Tolkien Professor podcast. Before we get to today's episode, however, I'd like to start with a little message for one of my listeners, Mr. Stephen Colbert. Mr. Colbert, my two students who visited your show have relayed to me your message. I was told that you would like me to release more podcast episodes. Now, I'd be happy to do that, Stephen, but I'm thinking that maybe you and I could come to a little arrangement. You see, just as you noticed that I haven't been too frequent with the episodes lately, I can't help but notice that you don't have many guests on your show that can really talk Tolkien with you. You bring up Tolkien a lot, and I always enjoy that. Your systematic demolition of James Franco a while back was extremely satisfying. What do you say we make a deal? If you have me on your show, I'll record a special episode just for you, dedicated to a topic of your choosing. Have your people contact my people, Olson at TolkienProfessor.com. Let's work this out. Now, on to the show. Today we return to the Silmarillion Seminar for our discussion of Chapter 7 of the Quenta Silmarillion, of the Silmarils and the Unrest of the Noldor. The seminar participants, who call themselves the Silmarillionaires, named this episode Sub-Creators Gone Wild. Okay, good evening, everybody. All right, um, let's start. Uh, Mike, you had a simple question to uh, to start with, and I think that's a, a, you raise an issue which is a really important one uh, to get clear, because this is a, a, a something that's thrown around a lot. So go ahead. Yeah, um, well, the word thrall, I think, appears maybe three or four times uh, in this chapter, thrall, thralls, and thraldom. And so I was hoping you could define that word for us. Well, very simply, it means it means slave. It's I mean, it's a sort of, a, of course, as Tolkien very often uses, a, a, a sort of an anachronistic word and a more Anglo-Saxon word uh, uh, for slave. Um, but that is really, I mean, you're right to point that word out too. I think it's a really dominant word in this uh, in this passage, not just because it's used the three different times, um, but because this is the idea that people keep coming back to. Um, we see it in, of course, the lies that are being sown among the Noldor, that they feel like they are being held, you know, instead of being the welcome guests of the Valar, in fact, they're being held in thrall by the, by the Valar, they're being, they're, they've been made into slaves. Um, but of course, also, the way in which they themselves are actually being enslaved by their own pride and their own wills. And this, of course, is especially true, uh, of, of Feanor. And I believe the last time the word is used, um, uh, is well is when it's used a fan or um, is that the the Silmarils hold him in thrall so that I think is um, is 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 a really important sort of developing idea over the course of this uh, of this chapter so yeah I think that that's a really important thing we can see how uh, how Tolkien is kind of playing on that concept uh, and I think some really interesting ways um, let's see and Matt you also had a sort of a general uh, kind of uh, nomenclature question oh, okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, Matt's question was uh, was uh, define the halls of the waiting. Um, we get the reference to halls of the waiting here on the first chapter, um, the first page of the chapter. Sorry. Um, uh, where is it? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's on this page. Sentence of the second full paragraph. Thank you. Excellent. There it is. Um, talking about the making of the Silmarils, but not until the end when Feanor shall return, who perished ere the sun was made, and sits now in the halls of awaiting, and comes no more among his kin. Not until the sun passes and the moon falls shall it be known of what substance they were made. The halls of awaiting are the halls of Mandos. So this is where the spirits of dead elves go. 
um, without their bodies, um, their bodies having perished, they can, it, you know, Tolkien says in some places, suggests that they can sort of generate new bodies for themselves later on, but this is where their spirits go. What happens to them there? You know, is there some kind of pur purging process? I mean, is this like elven purgatory? I, but it, the halls of awaiting is the term used, and that's kind of an interesting term. But anyway, this is where they go. This is also presumably where the spirit of, of, of Muriel, Feanor's mom, is. Um, which, as we discussed last week, leads to the awkwardness of the second wife. But anyway, um, so yes, that's what the halls of awaiting are. Um, and actually, I might as well uh, jump ahead to to um, uh, uh, Joe's question about hallowing, because I think that that's a really that's a really important thing. We've brought that up before. Um, that is that we saw the the trees, the two trees themselves were hallowed, and now we we see another act of hallowing. And I think I alluded forward to this moment back when we were talking about that with the trees, because this is one of the places where that is made most explicit. Um, and so this is the third full paragraph of the chapter. All who dwelt in Amon were filled with wonder and delight at the work of Feanor, and Varda hallowed the Silmarils, so that thereafter no mortal flesh, nor hands unclean, nor anything of evil will might touch them, but it was scorched and withered. So to hallow simply means to make something holy. Um, so she she makes them holy. They're not holy because Feanor made them. Of course, they're beautiful because Feanor made them. And, you know, they are the, the Silmarils are without exception the greatest work of craft ever made by a child of Iluvatar. But they're not holy. They're not sacred. Varda makes them holy. Uh, and we can see the effect of that hallowing. No mortal flesh, nor hands unclean, nor anything of evil will might touch them. Um, they are, and, and this is, you know, the, uh, which is continually tied up with the concept of holiness. Um, certainly when the, when, when holiness is described in the Bible as this sense of, 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 of separation, of, of sort of cleanness. Um, uh, I think actually, I mean, cleanness, I think of the, the way that that word is used, um, in the Middle Ages. Uh, the, the poem, which is really a lovely poem uh, written by the author, the anonymous author of the of the Middle English poem Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Uh, that poem is one of four poems in that manuscript, all seemingly written by the same author. Um, and one of his poems is called Cleanness, uh, and it's exactly about this kind of hallowing. Now there he's talking primarily about the soul and repentance and making yourself clean. Um, but uh, uh, but anyway, that so we see that by being made hallowed by hallowing them, Varda makes them react to uncleanness um and not just the substance of uncleanness that is things like mortal flesh um and hands unclean but anything of evil will so there's this this like the intention of the hand that holds it um is also sort of judged by the silmarils or rather reacts or responds to the silmarils um so that's i think uh uh i think a big a big deal uh there and and, and as i say the clearest illustration we get of hallowing uh, I think anywhere. Um, okay, so uh, let's see. Going back up to going back up to our list here. Um, Jason, why don't you go ahead? You wanted to talk about uh, uh, Feanor and Melkor. Sure. There's a scene at the end of the chapter where Melkor comes to see Feanor, and they have the conversation. And Melkor alludes to the Silmarils to try to persuade Feanor to leave um, with him. And there's the uh, statement that says his cunning overreached his aim, his words touched too deep and awoke a fire more fierce than he designed, and Feanor looked upon Melkor with eyes that burned through his fair semblance and pierced the cloaks of his mind, perceiving there his fierce lust for the Silmarils. And it's kind of silly, but every time I read this, I 
get this kind of image of Superman X-ray vision that Feyenoord <laughs> has. But there's um, I'm I'm wondering if there's a special significance of Tolkien using that f- uh, language that makes it seem like a physical act that Feyenoord's eyes are actually piercing through the um, appearance that Melkor has set up. And it, it seems like it, there's more there than just, well, he was a smart guy and he figured out what Melkor was really doing. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I'm not sure how much of an explanation I can give exactly, other than to say that this sounds to me like a thing like something that we've seen before, um, but kind of operating on a different level. That is, I kind of think back to the discussions we had back in the Ina Windaway and, and a couple times thereafter about the sort of intrinsically metaphorical language that the book is using, describing the Ainur and what they're doing, and we can't uh, we can't figure out, uh, you know, like we can't really conceptualize it, and so we're just given a way to understand it that would make sense to us. And here, I sort of wonder if this isn't a similar kind of thing. Um, that is, it isn't. I don't think we're actually being asked to imagine that there is some kind of, as you say, I mean, Superman is. I wasn't thinking exactly of Superman, but of something like that. I mean, you almost imagine like you know, sharp rays of light coming out of Feanor's eyes. And I mean, that's, that's, that's the kind of language used. And there are other places where um, that quality is described in somebody, um, you know, like the keenness of their gaze. You know, this is something, this is, this is something that Tolkien will comment on in other places. Um, but I think there, again, that seems to me kind of metaphorical. Um, it's not just as you say he was intelligent and could put things together. There is something penetrating about his gaze, about his insight, about his investigation of things. When he sees things, he can see through things, but but not literally. I mean, like not not brick walls. Um, but uh, but what he is, what he is, what his, what what his gaze is piercing through here and burning through, um, is the the cloaks of Melkor's mind, his own deception. Um. So in a sense, you can say, well, this is just insight or something. But but again, this this language is too persistent. Um, there is clearly some quality that Tolkien is trying to to evoke here, which is more than just he was smart. Um, and I think that you know this quality of being able to perceive this this quality of perceptiveness. Um, and you know, you think about it. I mean, it's not hard to see a pretty broad theme developing, or rather, at least a, a pretty persistent motif uh, through a lot of Tolkien's writings with this interest in the gaze. I mean, of course, you know, there's the Eye of Sauron that we're going to have, um, and all of the discussion of that before it tends to get kind of over-literalized in people's mind who just watch the movies too much. Um, uh, that is the whole gaze and identity between Sauron and the Eye. Um, but anyway, I mean, never, I mean, the Eye of Sauron and his gaze is something that's really emphasized. Um, but even, you know, other people, Denethor has a really penetrating gaze. Gandalf has a really penetrating gaze at times. Um, uh, Maeglin is going to have a really penetrating gaze. You know, so we will see we will see that kind of thing happening quite a bit. And so I think that we can see there is this this quality, not just of intelligence, but of this kind of perceptiveness, this ability to to you know dig down below things through through all obstacles that are sort of raised up, and to and and to see the truth, to see what is really at the bottom of things. Um, and that is clearly what, uh, what, what Feanor has and what he's sort of employing at this moment when he is seeing through, uh, Melkor. Mike, go ahead. Before we leave the, this, uh, paragraph behind, what I really found interesting was that in this confrontation, Feanor slams the door shut on the, 
on the conversation by saying that Melkor is a jail crow of Mandos. And I flipped back to, <clears throat> I picked up my, my copy of Lord of the Rings on the Two Towers, page 566, where Theoden slams the door shut on Saruman and says, I'll have peace when, with you when you're hanging uh, from a gallows for the sport of your own crows. And I just like the fact that the crow reference is there in both cases, and it's used to really slam the, the conversation to a stop. Yeah, yeah, it is really interesting. I mean, I, that, uh, that barb that Fanor throws at Melkor, um, is a really interesting one. And I think that, you know, there are a couple different ways that we could understand it. Uh, be gone, thou jail crow of more, of, of Mandos. Does he mean, by calling him the jail crow of Mandos, is he taunting him for being in Mandos's prison, which he was, you know, uh, you know, and, and calling him uh, you know, yeah, it's basically saying you are an escaped thrall yourself. Like you are the thrall of the Velar, uh, you know, and you're kind of out on leave, but you know, you are no more than that. Or is he even possibly suggesting in here? I think, uh, uh this is where the, that language from Theoden, uh, Mike, as you point out, exactly, uh, I, I was recalling too. Cause you see, when he uses the crow metaphor, when Theoden uses the crow metaphor, he says, you know, when you hang at a gibbet, uh, for, for the sport of your own crows, right? So there the crows are his servants. Uh, and of course we see Saruman's crows, uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring. But, um, but, uh, you know, so then you sort of wonder, is he also sort of, uh, throwing into Melkor's face not only the fact, you know, hey, you're just an escaped prisoner of the Valar yourself, but also, you're just their lackey, really. You, you, you talk a big game like, I am in opposition to the Valar and they are as nothing compared to me and like, come, you know, join the dark side, Luke. But nevertheless, you know, he's sort of saying, look, you know, you're, you're really, you're, you're, at the end of the day, you're fooling yourself. You're just their flunky. Um, so, I mean, I, 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 I mean, it kind of seems to me like it can be taken either way. I think the first one is the primary one, but, uh, but yeah, I absolutely love that. Uh, and the next sentence is such a great sentence. And he shut the doors of his house in the face of the mightiest of all the dwellers in Ea. Uh, so, uh, um, so, uh, uh, that, that sentence is so resonant. I love it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Matt, uh, is recalling, uh, Gandalf being referred to as Stormcrow. Um, uh, now there, of course, Gandalf is being compared to a carrion bird. Um, you know, Gandalf Stormcrow, uh, is, you know, saying that he, he comes, you know, it's connected with, uh, Wormtongue speech where he's, you know, is, is saying that he is a, a picker of bones, you know, someone who profits by, by, by other men's sorrows. Um, and so in that way, he's comparing Gandalf to a crow. Is Melkor being put in that category too, in some sense? You know, that he is, he is like a crow in that he feeds on carrion? Possibly. Um, possibly, you know, that basically he is, Melkor is in fact, there at the gates of Formanos because he is trying to capitalize on this bad situation, uh, and on Feanor's, uh, banishment. So, um, so yeah, sure. I mean, I think that that's, uh, that sort of, that sort of works. Um, but now, Joe, you had a, 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 a sort of a broader question about about Feanor and his power. All right. Um, no, uh, just when it talks about um, Feanor coming to his full might, I think it means um, his knowledge more than his physicality, because it seems like who knows how long they've been there, and it seems like his body would have already been fully matured. And in uh, kind of in reference to a Faramir line, Lord of the Rings, he mentions that men used to not be renowned for their prowess in battle, but other things. So it seems like it's referring 
you know, to his knowledge a bit more now. You know, he's master of all sports. He's learned everything he can from his uh, father-in-law and everybody else. I think it's funny his father-in-law gets mentioned later. At least I think. Either way, his uh, skill gets mentioned later in a bad way. But um, I just thought it was interesting to point that out because when I first read that, I thought, oh, he's physically matured. That's interesting. But right. then looking looking at it now, it just kind of seems like it means a little bit more. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree. And I think that one of the things that's so interesting there is that that moment is not only saying, now he's coming to the fullness of his might. That is, he, this is, this is the pinnacle of his career. And it could almost sound for a minute like the way a mortal might talk. Um, you know, I, I, again, I think I'm thinking forward to the speech that Hurin's going to make. He's a mortal man. Um, and when he's talking to Turgon and Turgon wants to hold them, uh, in Gondolin and Hurin makes that speech to say, you have to let us go because we want to fight against Morgoth and this is our only chance. Um, you know, we're men. We are, we're, you know, we're in the flower of our youth right now. We're great warriors, but you know what? Like, we're not going uphill. We're going downhill at this point. I'm not going to be as great a warrior five years, 10 years, 30 years from now as I am now. Um, so, you know, let me take advantage of the, uh, of the, you know, the, the pinnacle of my strength and ability. Well, I can. And so it's kind of tempting, potentially, to sort of take that that way and say, okay, now Feanor is at his peak, and so this is the moment where he's going to make the Silmarils. But he's not mortal, and that's not necessarily how it would work with him. That line is, as much as anything else, it seems to me, foreshadowing. Um, he is going to go downhill, sharply downhill, but not due to the process of, of aging and natural development. In fact, what we will see in the next chapter, I think it's the next chapter, it might be the chapter after that, uh, the Valar are going to be saddened by the waste of Feanor that, you know, what he could have accomplished had he not gone down this road and had he not sort of undertaken his own precipitous decline. Um, yes, the Silmarils are the greatest works of art ever, uh, and they're the greatest thing that Feanor ever accomplished. Would they have been the greatest ever had he stayed on the right path? Um, would he actually have created greater things later on? I think it's not impossible. Um, yeah, Joe, go ahead. I was going to say, do you think his name may have doomed him to that sooner, though? I mean, the spirit of fire, I think the fire in him would have consumed him to where maybe he just would have put too much in. Like, is it possible he could have put too much in too soon? Or do you think he could have somehow just gotten past that and continued to grow? Maybe if the bad things wouldn't have happened, it maybe maybe he never would have. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, yeah, no, that too is a really good question because with Feanor, I mean, of course, I, I, you know, my, the, the, the reaction I'm tempted to have really strongly is to say, well, okay, no. Yes, he's the spirit of fire, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yes, he sort of misapplies it and goes wrong. Um, but that's, of course, true of everybody, just as Melkor wasn't bad in the beginning and Sauron isn't bad in the beginning, but they misapply the very great and significant power that they have. So Feanor is made the greatest and, and the strongest and the best and excellent, but, um, it's not, it's not like that predestines him necessarily to going bad. That 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 fire is necessarily a bad thing. It could have been. It should have been used for good purposes. But at the same time, the one kind of hesitation I have in just simply saying that and leaving it is the fact that from the beginning, like from his birth, from his conception, even we see there is this excess about Feanor. I mean, like the way that he brings about the death of his mom. Um, it is from the beginning. Feanor is a lot. Feanor is great. But there is this sense that seems inescapable from the moment of his birth or before that he's too much. Um, and one wonders, you know, and that does kind of lead me to wonder, is it actually possible? Um, 
is it actually possible for him not to go bad? <laughs> you know, was he actually predestined for it? I, you know, I I think it's possible to make an argument for that. Go ahead, Joe. I was going to say, it's almost like he's above the bliss index, like he's just otherworldly in that sense in his spirit to where not even the elves can handle it. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I mean, it's, um, you know, I, I would resist making a statement so broad and categorical as to say something like, you know, so in Tolkien's world, we see, like, anyone, who, like, if you are great above a certain threshold, like, you're pretty much destined to fall. Um, that doesn't seem quite right. But then again, we see a heck of a lot of examples of that. Almost everybody who is the greatest of almost any category falls. Um, that's just a pattern. That's just a trend. Um, there, the danger is clearly there, and the greater the person is, the greater the danger. Um, now, of course, we do have very great ones who don't fall, like Manwe and, and, and Aule, who comes really, really close, but doesn't, uh, and almost. So, um, you know, we can't, we can't, uh, we can't just say, like, there's obviously a law, but it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think that you can, again, I, I wouldn't say definitely predestined, but that it's enough to qualify, uh, me and want to say, I, you know, I'm not 100% comfortable saying that it's just, uh, you know, he, he, he could have been fine. He would have been fine had he not for some reason decided to screw up. Um, yeah. Uh, Mike, you had a question about, uh, uh, about Fanor's redness. Yeah, I'm kind of tuned into color, I guess. We, a couple of chapters back, we talked about how Tolkien described the world as exclusively green until the trees arrived, and then we started getting yellow and silver and some other colors. And I wanted to know if any other character or, or object has yet, had yet been described in the book as red, excluding, you know, fire imagery, because it seems like, or I read it to be, that this is the first character who's going to be associated with the color red, He's he's made these helmets with plumes of red, and then if that's true, what does what is Tolkien saying with this arrival of this character who's associated with the color red? I have no idea what to say to that. That's a really interesting observation. I'd never noticed that before. That is, uh, Theonor is being the first one to be connected with the color red. Um, yeah, I don't know what to do. And for, Go and ahead, for me, ahead. it gets even more interesting because when I reread plumes of red. In one sense, clearly plumes are, you know, it's an object on top of a helmet, but plumes of red is always how a writer describes blood in the water. And so for me, yeah. it worked on two levels. It was fantastic. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the most obvious, I mean, two of the most obvious, I guess, associations with red are blood and fire, right? Both of which are obviously very relevant uh, to fan. Or if anything else, I think we can see, as we see quite frequently in this chapter, another piece of foreshadowing. Right. Uh, yeah. Red should be Fanor's color because, you know, he's about to go out and shed a lot of blood, a lot of blood he's going to be responsible for. And of course, it's not just the significance of blood in the sense that lots of people are going to be killed, but also sort of the other weight of blood in the sense of it, it, it's not just blood that's going to be shed. It's the kinslaying. It's going to be the blood of his blood that's going to be shed. So that's a big deal. And um and then, of course, the betrayal. I mean, so it, there's, 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 there's lots of bad stuff that's going to happen. All of which, you know, the, 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 the red foreshadowing there. And of course, as you see, the flames, the, the red plumes on top of the helmets, you know, and, and, you know, the idea of Feanor is the spirit of fire. And we can see this is the chapter in which Fingolfin gives the turn, that sort of negative turn to his name. He clearly has a, has an idea of what it means that, 
this guy, Kuru Finway, is called the Spirit of Fire, and he does not consider it a compliment, right? Who is called the Spirit of Fire all too truly. Um, and he clearly does not mean anything good by that. Um, so yeah, no, that's interesting. You know, I, 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 uh, Mike, I had a student in my Tolkien class last spring, um, who for his final paper, he wanted to do this whole investigation of color. Like he had done all of this work, like looking at all of the different references to like almost every major color that there was. Uh, it was, it was really impressive work. In the end, he had a really hard time bringing it together, uh, to make something that would like be not book length and that would be organized and things. But, uh, but he was really interested in kind of tracing these downs and uh, these things down. And I think there's no question that there, there do seem to be associations. Uh, and when you, you know, you can sort of look at patterns in the way in which, uh, uh, sort of the, 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 the moments and the kinds of situations in which Tolkien, uh, invokes certain colors. But, uh, but yeah, I'd say, you know, blood and fire is where I would go with the redness here. Um, but that's good. That that's that's really interesting. I'd never thought about that ever ever before in my life. So I think that's uh that's that's a, definitely a cool thing. Uh, John, you you had a a couple Silmaril points that you wanted to to talk about. We've been spending a lot of time on Feanor. It's about time we turned ourselves to the Silmarils here. Um, indeed. Of all the um, main objects of power we see in Tolkien's universe, besides the Rings of Power, of course, the Silmarils take uh, great precedent, especially in this book, of course, the Silmarillion. Yeah. Um, uh, but. A few questions came to mind, of course, concerning um, their origins and thought whether Tolkien uh, drew some other mythological um, concepts which you knew of, and also uh, concerning their actual creation. I think there might be a connection in the substance in which they were created to um, perhaps the Palantiri. Now, we know that the Palantirs, or uh, Palantiri, I should say, were made of a glass-like substance, and yet was so hard that it cannot be destroyed by any by uh, any great heat. Now this is also true of the Silmarils as well, because one ends up at, you know in the heart of the earth, in the bosom of the earth, where it's you know, right. molten hot. Right. Another interesting point I wanted to bring up uh, before we went on, and I believe Elizabeth brought up this point earlier in the chat as well. What does Tolkien mean specifically by the unlocking of the Silmarils? Whether the Silmarils are alive themselves and their shells are beings almost of um, a fleshly house, almost. And then finally, Feanor's um, part in the unlocking of the Silmarils at the end of days. I'm sure that's a, a mouthful to handle, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Right, let's see. Let's try to let's try to take these things. Um, um, let's try to take these things to, uh, uh, in order here. Um, yes, the connection with the Silmarils, uh, with the Palantiri, rather, is very well noted. Is very well remembered because um, it's. It is, of course, I mean, Gandalf suggests that Feanor probably, it's not 100% sure, but that Feanor himself probably made the Palantiri. So, um, so we know that these are, you know, but of course, obviously, since we know that the Silmarils are the greatest, the Palantiri are, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're just like, you know, like a little side project compared to the Silmarils, but nevertheless, um, they do seem to be, you know, I mean, are they made of the same thing? I don't know. I mean, they, they clearly function differently. They don't shine with their own light. That is that they don't, they're not designed to, uh, to sort of, to, to retain light in the way that, uh, that is the Palantiri are not designed to do that in the way that the Silmarils are. Um, but yeah, with, like the Palantir, with, with both of them, we get this, um, uncertainty about their substance, though both of them are in, are, are, do seem to be more strong than adamant. Um, the Palantiri are never broken. Some of them are lost. The ones that get lost end up, uh, you know, sinking in water. Um, 
but uh, but though presumably they're still there, like the Silmaril that's in the bowels of the earth. Um, now, the unlocking of the Silmarils, um, somebody remind me of the exact... I'm just wanting to make sure that we're sticking together here. Where's the, uh, where's the sentence where that's used? I'm not finding it here. Lay locked within them there, right? Mandos foretold that the fates of Arda, earth, sea, and air lay locked within them. The concept of unlocking... Paragraph, I think, towards the end. Right, right. Okay. Right, yeah, that's the passage that I just read about the, the fates of Arda, earth, sea, and air lay locked within them, right? Um, yeah, yeah, so that's... Um, and I see the unlocking. That's brought up later on, right, when they're talking about after after the darkening is where the concept of unlocking is explicitly raised. Um and I'm 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 wanting to I'm wanting to be cautious here because I think I think that we have to be careful. The locking metaphor um yeah, exactly, Chris. That that's the passage after the after the after the darkening, um, when they're talking about unlocking the Silmarils to release the light in order to resuscitate the trees. Um and I the thing I want to be careful about is that when we talk about unlocking the light the the, the Silmarils there and this reference to locking is something different. Um this is not because that is describing it seems basically to unlock the Silmarils is to to open them. It, it seems to be a metaphor to evoke literally opening them and letting the light out. But um, here, what's being locked within them is not the light of the trees, but the fates of Arda, Earth, Sea, and Air are locked within them, and that seems to be a more metaphorical, sort of a more abstract concept of locking. That is, that they are tied to them, that they are bound to them. The fates of all of these things are bound to the Silmarils. And this is a foretelling by Mandos. And and it's interesting, you notice this comes right after the hallowing by Varda. Vardo hallows them so that they can't be touched without, uh, you know, by, by anything, uh, you know, unclean or of evil will. But it was scorched and withered, and Mandos foretold that the fates of Arda. So, you know, we know that from now on, the fates of Arda are locked in the Silmarils, are bound to the Silmarils, are tied to them. Um, so yeah, that I think is is uh, thinking. Uh, Dave, go ahead. You wanted to you wanted to comment on this. Um, yes. Well, uh, mostly I was just pointing out in text that I think this is mostly Mandos just pointing out that pretty much for the rest of the well, for the rest of the book, even though Mandos doesn't think he's in a book necessarily, uh, <laughs> the Silmarils are going to drive events, which right. I think is well obviously true. And if the reader isn't aware of that at this point, then he probably did, doesn't know the name of the book that he's reading. But right. I, I think really Mandos is just talking about the fact that that well, these are obviously pretty important and most. Most of what happens from here on out is probably going to revolve around these um, uh, jewels. Right. And I think that we can see this continuing even when this book, which is called The Silmarillion, is going to end. Um, you know, remember Frodo and Sam on the stairs of Kirith Ungol, you know, when uh, Sam realizes that they're still in the same story, right? He's remembering the story of Baron and Luthien and, and how they got the Silmaril from Morgoth's crown. And then he looks up at the star and is like, hey, oh yeah, that star, that's the Silmaril. Oh, hey, we have the light from that Silmaril here in this, in the glass that Goadriel gave to you, Frodo. And this, you know, what the thing that prompts Sam to say, bless me, we're in the same tale still. Right? So we see, you know, there is a sense in which the Silmarils are going to continue being bound up with all things. And I think also there's another metaphorical, sort of, you know, this is an hour sort of layers of metaphor piled on top of one another, but a way in which even you know, the Silmarils are are not just themselves causally involved in all in so many of these events, which they are, but also that they 
they are like the perfect metaphor. They are like the like embodiment of one of the biggest trends that we will see in the whole book. You know, one of the things that's already been that we've already sort of raised earlier on, definitely when we were talking about Aule, the whole problem of loving too well the work of your own hands. Um, you know, and we've been discussing with Aule, with Melkor, um, uh, this continual problem of being a maker and getting drawn into loving the product of your own mind and your own hands either too much too much and or in the wrong way um and uh the silmarils are like the great the perfect best ultimate both illustration of that and kind of you know little embodiment and metaphor of that and so i think also in that sense we can see you know yes this is this is going to be this is why there's a conflict over arda um you know, this is, uh, this is what Morgoth's, or say, sorry, he's not yet, not quite yet Morgoth. Soon he will become Morgoth. Melkor, uh, his desire for the Silmarils is almost inevitable because it's, it is, um, his, his lust for the Silmarils is, works like, ooh, hey, you know, I, I could do an English teacher thing. It works like synecdoche with his love for all of creation, uh, the part standing for the whole, right? Um, it is, an image of that bigger thing. And it's the same motivation. It's the same thing. He lusts for them the same reason that he, that he, you know, he wanted creatures, the same reason that he wanted light. Um, exactly as, as Chris has just pointed out in the text, exactly what I was just thinking. He desires light for the beginning and wants to possess it for himself. Of course he lusts for the Silmarils. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's, uh, um, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, a, a pretty clear trend. Um, Dave, did you have something else you wanted to add to that? Uh, yes. Um, it, it's kind of a segue onto something slightly different um, that Laura and I were discussing. We The sentence that really jumped out at us was um, the one about, uh, yet that crystal was to the Silmarils, but as is the body to the children of Luvatar, the house of its inner fire that is within it and yet in all parts of it and is its life. Uh, and um, we just thought that was a very interesting parallel that the the Silmarils are almost just they're they're a lot like the elves they are their bodies or their their they are jewels they're crystals but their crystals are sort of not their their true being their true being is this inner fire the same way that's true of the elves their bodies are not the sum um, of their uh, being either right right yeah and you know what else it's like it's also like Ea with the secret fire burning in the middle, right? Um, yeah, I mean, we can see that same pattern all the way through. And again, this is why, and I, I don't want to keep using the word metaphor because they're not just a metaphor. They're also like a representation. They're also an example. They're also an illustration. They, but they are, uh, I don't know. The Silmarils are like the quintessence of all of these things, all of like the entirety of creation and mortal desires and all of these. I mean, all of these things get sort of bound up and end up orbiting the Silmarils. And I think that this is why it kind of makes sense. Okay, it makes sense that this book is called The Silmarillion. Um, on one level, I remember the first time, okay, I was about to say the first time I read this. I should correct myself and say the first time I successfully completed The Silmarillion. I, I honestly was a little bit puzzled by that. That is, by the title and by the significance of the Silmarils. My response to it at first was, well, you know, okay, I get the fact that these gems are awesome, okay? That gems are pretty and that these are the pretty, prettiest gems that ever were. But come on, get over it, people. I mean, they're gems, all right? I mean, like, why is everybody, like, uh, you know, turning the world upside down for for these 
you know, fancy, bright, shiny things. And, um, and I just basically, I was, I was, I was just kind of deaf to that. I just really didn't get it. But again, the more you look at it and the more you think about it, I mean, it is like, why are the elves loved and desirable? Why are, you know, it's like the Silmarils have all of these things all tied in together. Um, and really work. So again, not just as a metaphor, but as really sort of the perfect illustration of almost everything that drives almost everybody, both in positive and negative ways. Um, all of these things kind of, as I say, kind of come around and orbit the Silmarils. Go ahead, Dave. Ultimately, they, it, I mean, in a way, I, I'm, I have the same reluctance you do to say, to use the word metaphor, um, but uh, I'm going to do it anyway because I can't think of any other way to describe it. But ultimately, maybe the sort of everyone's everyone's desire for the Silmarils um, is it, that sort of in that in that way the Silmarils serve as a metaphor for life and maybe even eternal life or immortality, but or vitality or the secret fire, I guess. But right. but really, ultimately, this battle over these particular jewels maybe is really just a, a struggle over life. Um, uh, and so, you know, I, I hate to say metaphor, but I, cause I, we were discussing the text. A lot of us had the same reaction too. The first time I read this, I was wondering, why is everyone fighting over these stupid jewels? I, I right. didn't find them nearly as interesting as the ring, as artifacts. Mm-hmm. But with subsequent readings and just with illuminating comments people, um, mentioned tonight, and, you know, you start to realize that they aren't mere artifacts, that there's something more to them about this, and that maybe people actually aren't fighting over the jewels themselves, but what, what, what's inside them or what they're really about. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think that that's, and they, cause, and they work in so many different ways. And also, you know, for the record, I, metaphor is okay. I'm, I'm comfortable using the word metaphor. I just don't want to overuse it, and I don't want to use it sloppily. Um, that I, I think when we were talking about metaphor before, that is talking about the way in which, for instance, the entire idea of, of the music and the way the music of the Ainur is, is, dis, is described when we were talking about that as ultimately being a kind of metaphor. That this, it's not designed to be sort of a literal, physical description of what was going on. None of them have physical bodies. And so we're given a metaphorical, um, description in order to help us understand that's one of the things that metaphors can do um so there are many ways in which we can see metaphors like that operating the problem of overusing the concept of metaphor attached to the silmarils is that you can begin to make it sound like they they don't really exist for themselves like they are merely a metaphor like when we refer to the silmarils and everybody fighting over the silmarils we're not actually thinking of these three radiant gems instead we're just thinking of the concepts to which this idea of silmaril points and that i think we need to really resist um, they are not merely a literary device which points us towards these ideas. They are things <laughs> in the story which exemplify and embody these ideas and also do direct us to these thoughts and point us in these directions. But, um, but I think that that's, uh, and, and we can't forget that the Silmarils are wonderful. I mean, they are great. They're not bad. Um, and they're, they are, they are, they are, they are the greatest works of art ever. And that is a really, really good thing. That's why they're hallowed. Um, and, uh, that's, yeah, I mean, like, there, there are not many things that we will see be hallowed. Um, and, you know, we've seen two so far and, 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 and both of them very significant, the trees and the Silmarils, uh, which, um, you know, which preserve the light of the trees. Uh, so that seems, that seems, that's, that's definitely important. Joe, go ahead. Right, uh, mine kind of goes back to Feanor briefly. Um, when you mentioned uh, like Aya and the Fire Within and just everything, the entirety, it, it made me think of predestination 
and things like that. And I thought of maybe, uh, you know, it seems like there's both in the work of Tolkien. There's predestination, there's free will. Maybe Fanor was given his fire because, you know, the Silmarils are meant to come around, but then, the you know, the free choice thing comes around. Okay, now what's he going to do with it? What's going to happen from it? What are people going to do? Are they going to make the right choice, the wrong choice? I just uh, I, just you talking about that entirety of everything made me draw that connection as in uh, the two things being there at once. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, I think we definitely can see that uh, operating in the Silmarils. I mean, it's, it's one of the cool things about the Silmarils, and it is, like, the more you think about it, the cooler it gets. Um that so many things come back to them, and they are such a great illustration and such a great example of so many different things. Um, and I think of the, 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 the phrase that keeps running through my head is the phrase that Tolkien used in one of his early letters um, when he talks about, when he alludes to these stories, the Silmarillion stories that he's started, that he has begun writing. Um, and he's doing The Hobbit, and he's working on his, you know, the sequel and stuff, but he really, like, what he really wants to do is go back and work on these, and what he really, really wishes is that he could get this stuff published. Um, and the phrase that he uses, you know, when he's, this is like sort of like an almost confessional letter to his publisher, uh, and he says, the Silmarils are in my heart. And, uh, you know, I just feel like you can really sort of see that, like, you know, that he, what he does with the Silmarils in his stories, it just really kind of crystallizes. Well, look, hey, a pun. He crystallizes. They they crystallize everything, right? They 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 really bring everything together. I mean, you can just really see how for him they you know they were really at the heart of so much, so many of the ideas that uh, he had, um, you know, and sort of the 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 stuff that he wanted to say and the 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 the, the myths that he was reading and the myths he wanted to write. All of this stuff really comes together around the Silmarils for him. Uh, and I, I think that that's, yeah, yeah, the Silmarils were in his heart. Um, yeah, Jason, go ahead. I'm sorry if I'm mentioning something that someone else brought up earlier because I was distracted for a moment, but I was wondering, it, it seems like we can't go too far in the direction of saying that um, the Silmarils are great simply because of what's inside of them, because if it's the light of the trees, of course, the trees are right there. I mean, everybody can see the trees and enjoy their light at this point. And I'm wondering if maybe the uniqueness of the Silmarils is something having to do with the combination of the greatest works of the of the Valar plus or combined with the greatest works of the children of Iluvatar, and whether that has something to do maybe with Melkor's desire for mastery over it or um, you know to possess it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, that's a really great point. Because, you know, it is easy to think, I mean, okay, it's it's one thing after, you know, when the trees are destroyed and the Silmarils are all that's left. I mean, okay, sure. Obviously, everyone's going to make a big deal about them then. But it is really noteworthy. It's, you know, that here are the trees standing there, blazing, you know, <laughs> blazing forth their light. And here's everybody gathered around these three little gems that have some of that light in them. And everybody being like, ooh, ah, oh, wow, look at that. It's like, dude, look over your shoulder. The tree's right there, man. I mean, like, if, if it's the light that you like, what about, so, so clearly there's something else besides that. I, I mean, it's, this is not just a matter of, you know, a, a, a bunch of people standing around a huge bonfire and then somebody has a candle and be like, ooh, look at that, fire. I mean, no, obviously that's, there's there's more than that. And I, I think that you've really hit it, Jason. It's exactly uh, what I would say about that. This is what they recognize is sort of how special this is, that he has taken and really brought things together. As you say, it's one of the greatest, certainly. The greatest work of Yavanna, period. One of the greatest works of all of the Valar. Um, and also one of the most, one of the most sacred. I mean, with the connection to light. Um, and, you know, we've, we've looked before at the connection between light and Iluvatar. Um, so, 
there is something, you know, intrinsically sacred about this light as well. So it's also sort of a conspicuous choice. There's certainly there are other works of other of the Valar that could have been sort of similarly worked with or worked upon, but this is an important one to choose. So yeah, uh, you know, this is really, this is the pinnacle of the pinnacle of creaturely artifice. Okay, see, now I have a problem. Maybe you guys can help me. This is a nomenclature problem. This is a word problem I've had for a long time. I want an adjective that can apply to elves and men together. I keep wanting to say mortal, but of course I feel, I I always stop myself when I want to say mortal because somebody's going to pop up and say, yeah, but the elves are not mortal, so you can't. It's like, but what I want is an adjective to describe that set of people who are not the, who are not the Ainur. Collectively, like an adjective that means of or relating to the children of Iluvatar. And I, 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 I have not. So if anybody comes up with a good one, please let me know, because that would be a really useful word. Um, anyway, uh, the greatest of the works of that kind of person and the greatest of the works of the Valar. So yeah, I think that that's exactly what, what we see here. They realize they're in the presence of what is going to be really the greatest act of subcreation ever. And that's a big, and they celebrate it, even though the light of the trees is just blazing away over there. Uh, they, they, um, they still, they still really celebrate that, and I think very rightly so. Um, but we've come back to, and alluding again to the hallowing of the the Silmarils and stuff. So I want to come back to Elizabeth's uh, question a while back about mortal flesh. Here I was trying to kind of smooth that over, but Elizabeth isn't going to let me very rightly. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was I, I'm, I was confused. I was hoping you could give your thoughts on why mortal flesh is thrown in there in the same sentence with hands unclean and uh, anything of evil will. Right, right. I, it's it's a little hard not to go original sin on that. I mean, it's it's not that I think that that's wholly inescapable. Um, but it seems to me, and this is the reason why I do resist using the word mortal to apply to elves and men. It doesn't. That seems to be a distinction. Like when Tolkien uses the word mortal, he does seem to mean human as opposed to elves. Um, so, uh, um, so he does seem to suggest that any human being who touches them is uh, is going to get burnt. That more that that mortals just can't do it. Um, elves can, so long as their will is not evil. Um, but humans, it seems, categorically cannot. Um, and again, that that's what sort of makes me think. Uh, and again, that's just sort of my reading of that one phrase, like those that 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 one two word phrase seems to suggest that. Um, and I agree with you, Elizabeth. It's really conspicuous that that's thrown in there in the company that it's keeping there in that list. Um, that all human beings seem to be thrown into the category of, of that kind of corruption. And that's why I kind of, uh, I kind of have a hard time escaping original sin kind of thoughts. Um, uh, someone, however, has raised the obvious objection or, or, uh, uh, caveat or query related to that. Dave, I think it was you. Yes, it was. Um, who brought up the example of like, hey, wait, wait, we have seen a mortal who touches the sil, or we will see a mortal who touches the Silmarils and do- does not get burnt, right? Don't we? Well, Baron does, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Baron does. Now, <sighs> though, remember, sort of yes and sort of no. Baron 
touches them and he doesn't get burned. I mean, like, you know, he, he picks it, he holds the Silmaril in his hand and he doesn't, you know, like start like, you know, he doesn't drop it and, and, and like, you know, start jumping around in pain. Uh, and he's able to hold forth the Silmaril and, you know, in his hand and everything. But then, of course, his hand gets bitten off. Um, but you remember also what happens to the hand um, when they recover the Silmaril out of the belly of the wolf. Um, and I have to say, as a side note, like, apologies to, like, any of you who don't know this work really well, and, of course, to the people who are listening to the recordings, uh, for whom we are so frequently indulging in, like, massive spoilers of what's gonna happen later on. Um, I apologize, but I can't, don't see how we can totally avoid that. But anyway, um, when the Silmaril is recovered out of the belly of the wolf, his hand is still gonna be kept whole. But then when they take the Silmaril, his hand dissolves away. Um, so, you know, his hand, I don't know. I mean, we can come back and look at that more when we get there and we read the description and everything. But uh, but it's not even, uh, t- to me, it's not 100% obvious that the flesh of Baron, which does touch the Silmaril, it, it's, it, it seems a little uh, conspicuous that it's the hand that gets bitten off that touches the Silmaril. Um, and then when he comes back, uh, I guess he touches it. Does he ever touch it? Does just Luthien touch it? I don't know. It's it's a little complicated. So so even Baron is not quite so obvious a counterexample to the mortal flesh thing as might perhaps seem at first. Mike, go ahead. For me, what I was thinking when I read Hands Unclean was uh, Romeo and Juliet and Civil War that makes civil <laughs> hands unclean. Right. So I was thinking that's that's the foreshadowing to the elves and what they're going to do to each other. Right, and that's of course what makes the hands of elves unable to touch it is 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 the corruption of their wills, as we will see. Uh, I, that's a that's a fabulous echo. I love that. Um, uh, we certainly will see civil hands unclean. Uh, uh, even by the end of this chapter, we see that though they're not nearly so unclean as they're going to be pretty soon. Um, but that's you know we will see, and we'll come back to this with you know when we meet humans. Um, and I I think uh, someone in the someone in the text chat here I think it was maybe Laura was just sort of mentioning how interesting it is that we get this reference to mortal flesh because no one's even uh, um oh no no Dave it was you uh, that it's odd that it's brought up here because the Valar haven't even mentioned men yet I mean that it's just like sort of a non-issue um but uh but anyway that's 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 um I think one reason why it gets nothing more than a sort of a, a slanting. Uh, reference here, uh, and why it, we should come back to this kind of thing. That is, it does seem to open the question, is Tolkien here suggesting that all human beings are, to some extent, intrinsically morally corrupt? I think that's a very sensible question to ask in response to that list, but I don't think that we should fully try to answer it yet, because we have almost no data about men yet, as they haven't walked onto the scene. Um, uh, Chris, go ahead. Recognize Baron may be a special case, so maybe my, my theory may not hold water in light of him. But uh, I was wondering, because of the nature of men that were aging and were um, decaying in a way as we age and get older, the, the nature of our bodies can't hold up to touching uh, something that's hallowed like that. Again, Baron has a special destiny, so maybe he's just uh, just an exception. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just wondered what you thought about that. Uh about Baron being an exception because he has a special destiny? Well, no, no, actually, no. Actually, put Baron aside. Just the idea of that maybe that uh, mortal hand or mortal flesh can't touch the Silmarils because 
of the nature of men that they're not that the, their bodies can't hold up can't uh, hold up to it like they can't live in in Valinor without aging real quickly that this is right right um, just right yeah that that it affects them in the same way um as yeah as you say being in Valinor does yeah maybe maybe i mean the problem there is that that's included in this list of essentially um that's included just in this list of of people who are going to get burned if they touch the Silmarils, um, which would therefore then seem to be um, seem to be a different thing from that because we certainly will see the Silmarils having that effect um, on people that is being like that sort of the concentrated Valinor experience uh, brought to mortals, but. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely that's definitely operative, uh, but that doesn't seem to be what the hallowing here um, really is is sort of primarily pointing to. Um, but yeah, yeah. Let's see, uh, John, you had something about the Silmarils in the End of Days. Let's see, are you are you, uh, are you able to get to the audio, John? There you go. Uh, yes, I was just curious about Feanor's part at the end of the world concerning the Silmarils. I was wondering because. Um, I found, of course, some versions, believe it or not, in audio of uh, the history of Middle-earth. I finally hunted those down. <laughs> Good. Of course, um, David and Laura um, can um, confess that I have been badgering them in the past through emails. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I've been looking for these audio adaptations. They're not all that great. But there are a few which are shining gems like the Summerals. <laughs> right. And... I haven't found so far a good, final, clear-cut version of Feanor's role at the end of days concerning the Silmarils. And, I mean, well, of course we see that finally he yields the light over to regrow the two trees. I believe that might be in the shaping of Middle-earth. But beyond Volume 5, The Lost Road, no one else has uh, <laughs> created any adaptation, which right. I am aware of, sadly. Right. So, right. Um, <laughs> you know... If anyone from the Tolkien estate happens to come across <laughs> this podcast, well, yeah, you know who to contact. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Anyway, we certainly, we so certainly that's do my need audio press five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, but I, I see that that question, and that's a big question. Um, and I want to, I want to come back to this. I hope when we get uh, to. There are a couple of places where we'll get reference to what will happen at the end of days. We've seen uh, one big reference to it already that we addressed in the Ainuindale when we talk about the choir of the Ainur, which will sing the even greater music with all of the children of Iluvatar at the end of days. Um, we've gotten that reference to about the dwarves and how they're, they, they believe that they will help Aule with the reconstruction of the new earth in, uh, at the end of days. Um, but... Um, Anyway, so that's that's all um, that's all that we've seen so far. That we will see a couple other references of other people who are going to come back, some in good ways and some not in good ways. At the end of days, he never works out really clearly exactly what the end of days is going to be like. We don't have we don't get a very clear. <laughs> okay, I was just about to utter the sentence. We don't get a really clear sense of what the apocalypse is going to be like in Tolkien. And then I thought to myself, where do we get a really clear sense of what the apocalypse is going to be like? Um, but anyway, uh, so I guess that's just kind of par for the course. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, I, th there is this clear sense of this 
last great event that's going to be happening. You know, what the, what the end of days will be will be this sort of second creative act, this sort of culminating moment. Um, and Fanor, you know, Fanor and the Silmarils, yeah, they will be involved. But uh, it's it's hard to it's hard for me to be really confident that we can say like this is clearly this is clearly definitely the plan. And this is one of the things about the history of Middle Earth uh, series. Um, it's really important to be kind of contextualizing what he says at different times. And this is something I've been thinking about again a good bit recently. Um, you know, one wants to dig around and say, okay, here's what Tolkien really thought about this, or here's what Tolkien really thought about that. And you always have to remember to qualify it. Well, this is what he thought about this then, at that point in his life. And this is what he thought about this at this point in his life. Are any of these, like, can, you know, where can we say, here's what Tolkien was really going for? And this is why, in the end, you know, I'm not sure that trying to resolve that question is really important or really necessary. But, um, anyway, it's, um, it's a, it, it opens up a pretty complicated, a pretty complicated issue. Um, Brandon, you had a question about Gorfindel? Which I find tantalizing. So I, <laughs> I, I would, 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 would love to hear it. Yeah, my, I guess my question was, um, just um, in the Lord of the Rings, it's Glorfindel is referred to. Um, I think it's kind of like a um, kind of a hierarchical language that you don't find in most um, works of literature. Like I think wisdom sat on on his brow instead of on his brow sat wisdom. Right. A reverse order of um, words like that. If you could just comment on that and how that kind of goes throughout the whole Cimmerillion is filled with that kind of hierarchy of language. With the way that he inverts uh, the language order and things. Yeah, that kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things, and, and I think it's important, uh, to notice. I mean, I'm glad you pointed it out. Uh, you know, like the little discussion we had about Tolkien's style and the effect of Tolkien's style last week, I'm glad you raised this again. Because again, of course, the style is one of the things which is sort of the, uh, you know, an overriding, uh, issue always through the Silmarillion. But I think not only is his style something is, is sort of the formalized and archaic style of the Silmarillion at times, um, something which sort of needs to be surmounted by modern readers. That seems to be how people mostly think about it. But I think not, a, it's not just something that needs to be surmounted. It's also not even just something that can be enjoyed for itself. That is as a curious thing, like, ah, this strange, unusual and archaic style. You can come to, you know, you can kind of acquire a taste for it and, uh, you know, come to enjoy it for itself and its own sort of unusual beauty. But also, but there's more to it than that, too. Um, uh, there's a difference between saying wisdom sat on his brow and on his brow sat wisdom. Um, you know, the, uh, one is more sort of unusual and archaic than the other. Um, but also it changes the emphasis. Um, and I think Tolkien was especially fond of this because you know, remember, he was an Anglo-Saxon scholar, and he, uh, you know, he really loved Anglo-Saxon literature. English used to be an inflected language. English used to be a language which, uh, uh, which, uh, which, the, what that means is, uh, English used to be one of those languages, like Latin and Greek, um, and, you know, most of the other Germanic languages still, which have endings of the words which tell you what the function of that word is in the sentence. Whereas now modern English is is not an inflected language, um, which means we determine the role of words by the order in the sentence. 
Um, so adjectives and nouns have to be, you know, in a particular order or else if you change the order, it totally changes the meaning of the sentence. You know, you can't just take two sentences, swap the object and the subject, uh, you know, into different places without changing anything else. And then, you know, you've changed the meaning of the sentence when you say that. Um, I mean, the man bit the dog is a very different sentence from the dog bit the man. I mean, you can't just, you can't just switch it around. Um, whereas in Anglo-Saxon, you could because, uh, you know, because the dog bit, in, in the sentence, the dog bit the man, dog would be in the nominative case and man would be in the accusative case. And no matter where they were in the sentence, you'd be able to tell them apart, probably. Um, now, there, there, but, but you can still mess with it. You know, like he does, you can still mess with word order. You can still mess with how things are presented. And when you do, and by doing that, what you, cause, cause what you can do in an inflected language is, since you have those endings and you have the freedom to change things around, you can choose what you want to present first, where, where you want your emphasis to be, how do you want to start your sentence, how do you want to end your sentence, um, and you can therefore highlight different words. Um, by where you place them in the sentence. Um, uh, I mean, just think about those two examples. Wisdom sat on his brow, and on his brow sat wisdom. Well, in the first one, wisdom is what is emphasized. That, that's a sentence about wisdom. The second one is a sentence about his brow, right? That's really, I, I, I think anyway, wh where the emphasis lies. And I think that there are a lot of places where we can hear that, where we can hear Tolkien um, exploiting those kinds of conventions um, in his language. So I, I would encourage you when you come across sentences in the Silmarillion where you're tempted to say, like, wow, that was really tortured. Like, why have we bent over backwards here to, you know, sort of switch around the thing? Like, there's a much simpler way to say that. Well, yeah, there probably is. But if you said it in that simpler way, you'd be saying something a little bit different. Um, and therefore, to look at the way in which he is using this style. And I'm not saying that that's the only thing that he's doing, but it does often have that function. Um, so I think that that's, that that's an important thing to think about. Um, yeah. This has been style moment. Uh, <laughs> and now back to the, back, back to the content discussion. Uh, or Mike, you wanted to add something? Leave style moment. Behind. Let's extend it a little bit more. I was <laughs> okay. just going to say, uh, the two sentences, bitterly did the Noldor atone for the folly. And then a page later, uh, bitterly did Matan rue the day when he taught to the husband. You know, the fact that the two sentences a page apart, starting with the word bitterly, I mean, that's, that's style, that's word choice, and that's hammering home the bitterness of the mistakes that everyone who had encountered Feanor is now regretting. Yes, bitterly, bitterly. Um, yeah, that's a great example. Bitterly did Matan rue the day when he did this. Um, and, uh, yeah, can you think about what's the, what's the effect of the change there? Now, starting a sentence with an adverb is a kind of thing that we do, uh, in modern English. Um, you know, uh, you know, quickly, I ran down the hall. We do that kind of thing, but this is different than that, right? Bitterly did Matan rue the day. Um, uh, the straightforward, the simple way of saying that in modern English would be Matan bitterly rude the day. But see there, that really subordinates the adverb. You know, that's a sentence about Matan and what he's doing is ruing and how he's ruing is bitterly. So it's like, I don't know, I would put it third in the emphasis. Um, you know, and also as you say, bitterly did the Noldor atone for their folly, the same, uh, the same pattern. 
um, what he does by switching that order around and taking that adverb and putting it in the beginning where it would not normally and comfortably be in the beginning. That's a that's an adverb which, in that kind of construction in modern English, should come between the subject and the verb. That's where we would normally put it. The Noldor bitterly atoned for their folly is how we would say that in... <laughs> I almost said how we would say that in normal conversation. If you ever catch yourself saying the Noldor bitterly atoned for their, for their folly in normal conversation, then you know I want to be a part of your normal conversations more often, I think. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> anyway, the point is, that's where we would put it normally. But again, by doing this, he really lays the emphasis on the bitterness, right? That becomes a sentence about bitterness, even more than it is a sentence about the Noldor, or atoning, or their folly. Those things are all still there, but he really he really lands on the bitterly. Um, and Mike, as you say, especially the second time, that exact same construction comes around with that exact same word. Uh, we get, uh, we get the, the, uh, the sort of double or treble emphasis on bitterly there. Um, yes, yes. Oh, Brandon, great example. Yes, the pain and the anger of the pain, right? That's, uh, uh, yeah, that is, uh, uh, that is, that, that is a fantastic example. Um, yes, yes. Okay. Thank you, Mike, for extending style moment. I think that was, uh, I think that was, that was, that was good. That was fun. Um, and, and something I definitely want to do as we go along. Because again, I think so often the style simply is just like an obstacle to be overcome and it can be. But if you can, if you can really embrace it and, 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 and really kind of get into it, it really, it, it opens up so many, so many more things. It gives you a set of cues, um, which if you're sort of ready to interpret them, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> See, this is why the other chat window is sometimes a problem, because I will sometimes catch out of the corner of my eye something someone has said there, and then it's hard for me not to laugh in the middle of my sentence. <laughs> like, uh, and I hear, of course, I'm laughing at Elizabeth's pledge to try to use that sentence about the Noldor in conversation at work tomorrow. Um, yes, we'll do that. That'll be everybody's pro- project for tomorrow, and everyone will be looking at us strangely. <laughs> anyway, okay. Now we shall move on from style mo- uh, style moment. Um, let's see. Uh, next, um, let's see. Chris, I think you wanted to comment on uh, on Finway's parenting. Oh wait, we've lost Chris, haven't we? I just noticed that I'm calling on Chris and he's not even there. Okay, never mind. Um, anybody else want to talk about Finway's parenting in the absence of Chris in Chris's stead? Sure, Matt, go ahead. Oh, Matt's gone. <laughs> Matt's gone too. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, oh, Matt is Matt is coming back into the house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I agree, Dave. Seems like a series series of horrible things are happening to people who want to talk about this. All right, Matt, you want to give it a shot? Yeah, actually, had written some. Uh, Chris had some good points to make, but I, I'd written some notes on that. Finway almost seems to be a classic enabler. And seems to have some hero worship of his own son. And, uh, you know, I also seem to detect, I don't know, this might be a stretch, but I, uh, I detected some parallels with the biblical story of Jacob and Esau with, uh, uh, Fanor and his brother, what was his brother's name again? Fingolfin. Fingolfin, that's right. That's yeah, right. yeah. And, um, you know, I'm sure Chris had much more elaborate and profound points, but uh, I was going to chime in with that when he spoke on that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that it's um, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, 
And I agree, uh, Jason, it just, uh, uh, pointed out thinking about, uh, uh, Jacob's sons, think about Joseph and his brothers and sort of the privilege there. <sighs> the passage I would want to, I, I want to sort of recall, uh, the passage from the previous chapter, um, and this is in the commentary on Finway's, uh, 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 you know, fateful choice to, to marry a second time. Um, Okay, and the sentence is, In those unhappy things which later came to pass, and in which Feanor was the leader, many saw the effect of this breach within the house of Finway, judging that if Finway had endured his loss and been content with the fathering of his mighty son, the courses of Feanor would have been otherwise, and great evil might have been prevented. For the sorrow and the strife in the house of Finway is graven in the memory of the Noldoran elves. So the implication here is that say, whoever is saying this, um, and we're not told exactly uh, who's with you know many saw this effect. So we have this sort of vague plural of opinion here. Um, but whoever it is who is holding this opinion, many these many people are suggesting it seems that if Finway had focused more on Feanor, Feanor might have turned out better. And that seems to me kind of counterintuitive um, from the thing that, uh, compared to what you were saying before, Matt, that is, you're sort of, the, the phrase that you used, Matt, was hero worship, which I think is a really interesting one. Um, it does kind of sound like that. I mean, he seems to be, Finway seems to be just really in, in, in Feanor's orbit throughout this whole thing. Um, and, uh, but yet, there's this earlier I- implication that, you know, the problem is he's not focusing on Feanor enough. And that's, that's, that I find pretty interesting. Um, Joe, what, what were you going to say about this? All right. Uh, well, I was going to say, it seems like possibly since he lost his first wife, all he has left of her is Feanor. And it, this doesn't make his more attention right, really. But, like, since all he has left is him, he has the, he's trying to put his love for his first wife along with his love for Feanor all together into Feanor, and he's just grasping at him so much more because it's the one thing he has left of his first wife because, I mean, he, like, was he was extremely distraught at the, losing, at the loss of his wife, so it seems like he's kind of channeling that more towards him. And that kind of follows along with why he followed him out of Valinor, uh, the city they were in, because, uh, because he would have lost that little bit he had left of his first wife. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah, I, I agree. It's It's hard not to be thinking about that i think um and especially in here again i go back uh to the what jason was pointing out uh in the text um that that makes it you know even more a lot like um like the story of joseph uh the primary reason that jacob favors joseph so much over his other sons uh in the genesis story uh is that the wife died um so uh that is joseph's mother was dead and so he's remembering her and favoring joseph now, Dave, you wanted to to add to the the Finway question? Sure. Um, uh, I don't know how much Tolkien would appreciate my connecting things to connecting his stories to uh, current events, especially <laughs> controversial ones. But uh, reading the passage where they where it has people speculating about, oh, you know, uh, you know, in the aftermath of things, with the benefit of hindsight, oh, well, maybe Finway had just done a better job with Fan, or things have turned out better. Um, uh, I was thinking, you know, uh, in the aftermath of the horrible shooting in Arizona, that was one of the first things that started popping up. On on all the news pundits that maybe somehow this was Jared Lofner's parents' fault, uh, that they didn't do a good enough job with him or they didn't get him the help he needed, they didn't 
um, you know, uh, stop him. They didn't know what was going on, all that kind of stuff. And I was just thinking <clears throat> that maybe this is just idle gossip. You know, this was just sort of the, 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 the peanut gallery elves standing around after uh, Feanor's killed the Teleri and um, slashed and burned and gone across Middle-earth. And, and, you know, and this is just a bunch of sort of older el- elderly elves standing around saying, you know, <laughs> oh, pretty terrible, you know. Th- you know, I always knew there was something wrong with that kid, and, and Finway <laughs> indulged him way too much. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I wonder if this is gossip. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that that's an interesting kind of reading. We're certainly, I, I mean, I certainly think to kind of approach that suggestion from uh, from the other direction, it certainly seems inappropriate to read that passage as clearly authoritative. You know, it's definitely not authoritative. Um, the question is just how good a guess is it? You know, and how seriously are we to take it as a guess of what as a guess of what happened? I mean, what seems to me clearest about the the, the about the Finway's role or lack of role in all of this is you know, I I don't really know exactly how he was as a parent, but it seems like he's a pretty crappy king. Um, I mean, when <laughs> yes, that's true. When Fanor and Fingolfin are standing there fighting and st- I, you know, and there's this question of like, so who is really in charge here? I, you know, I always reading that I always want Finway to stand up and say, well. I am for crying out loud. Both of you shut up and go to your rooms. You know, I mean, like, uh, come on now. I mean, he is the king of all of them. You know, when they're like, oh, whom shall you follow this or that? Um, well, where's, where's Finway? Well, where Finway is, is like, you know, living in his little, like, apartment attached to Feanor's house, you know, up in, up in, in Formanos. I mean, he, the way that he abdicates, Sort of in, I, you know, and he couches it as a kind of protest. As long as my son is exiled, I consider myself unkinked, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, um, you know, you criticize my son, you criticize me. I mean, he seems to take offense at the criticism of Feanor. But I mean, it just seems weak. It just seems weak, um, as a king. And what exactly are we saying about him? I mean, we, we don't get any participation from him, any clear sense of participation from him in the rebellion or the desire to leave, uh, Valinor, but this is an act of almost rebellion against the Valar for him. And yeah, I just, that certainly seems like, it certainly seems like he, he, um, as king certainly should have had the capability to, to restrain Feanor. I, I, maybe at, the, maybe at the extreme he wouldn't have been able to. Maybe Feanor was heading down his path and, and at the end of the day, if his father had opposed him, he would have, would have, you know, rejected his father too. But, um, Finway's behavior from the point, from the moment that his, 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 his wife dies seems to be, um, motivated. It, it seems to be extremely self-indulgent and not particularly reasonable. Um, or not not that it's not reasonable, but it's not well reasoned. It's not behaving right. like a king. He right. he behaves like a grieving widower for like pretty much the rest of his life. Even after he goes and you know you, you sort of get the impression that his that that his his second wife and his and his stepchildren are are you know that it's not like he he sort of came to grips with his first wife's death and and then you know oh out of nowhere meets a new woman and falls in love with her but it's more like he just his wife's death opens this this hole and he spends the rest of his life trying to fill it 
Um, right. And and that that is sort of the guiding principle in all of his decisions, and that leads him to abdicate his responsibility as king, overindulge his clearly rebellious um, and foolish and foolhardy son. Um, and I think particularly the decision, like you said, to go off with his son into exile is kind of goofy because it's like, I mean, come on, man. You know, Feanor screwed up. He deserves what he's getting. This right. isn't like a political decision. This isn't anyone being unfair. I mean, you know, the guy pulled a sword on, well, for starters, he made a sword, and then he pulled <laughs> right. it on somebody, and he pulled it on his brother, his brother who's Fenway's son. I mean, right. wake up. Right, So yeah. I, I just... I get the impression that he's he's kind of like the Walking Dead almost. He's just he's so he's still wallowing. They don't mention it, but he it looks like he's still wallowing in his grief. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. It's 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 the it's the unreason of his apparent sort of semi rebellion against the Valar, which seems so odd and so kind of objectionable. In some ways, I would kind of respect Finway more if he if his response were all right. That's it. I led the Noldor into Valinor. I'm leading them out again. Whatever. Um, I mean, that would not be a great choice. Um, but for him to say, like, well, uh, you know, you exiled my son and I think that's very bad and I'm going to go with him because I don't want him to be lonely or whatever. Like, you know, I, I, I'm offended in some way by your exiling him. They had very good reason. I mean, as you said, Dave, they have very good reason to exile him. I mean, he drew his sword on somebody. Like, it, 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 what they say is reasonable. The punishment is reasonable. The, what he did was clearly a big deal, and he's clearly not getting the fact that it's a big deal. So, uh, not to mention the fact, of course, as you point out, this is his own son that had his sword drawn on him, his other sword, that had the, his other son that had the sword drawn on him. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a strange moment, and it's hard to kind of keep Finway in mind as a, as a character at all, in my mind anyway, after, after this happens. Jack, what were you thinking? Yeah, my uh, my topic uh, follows on something Dave was saying, so I thought I'd just jump in here and, and say sure. it. Sure. Um, like throughout the chapter, um, it's emphasized that the the Bell are, are kind of hands off. They let the elves do what they want to do to come and go, right. et cetera, et cetera. But in this case, Manway um, does get involved. It's like Feanor crosses the line, and I was wondering uh, why why couldn't the elves handle this themselves? Why did he feel he had to um, get involved? And the only thing I can think of is that Feanor is just too big, too powerful for anyone else to, to handle that it actually required uh, Manway to uh, to step in. Well, yeah, and especially, I mean, again, you know, I, now I'm starting to feel guilty piling on Finway. Um, but it's only, you know, Finway is the one who should, right? Not only is he his king, he's also his father. Um, yes, true, Feanor is the greatest and biggest and best and nobody else, I mean, if it were actually to come to conflict, nobody else can really compete with Feanor, not even his father. But Feanor does love him, as we're reminded later, and does respect him. And, um, yeah, I, it's not that I think necessarily that the Valar are saying here, all right, Finway, since you're not going to keep order in your house and in your kingdom, I guess we're going to have to intervene and do it for you. I don't think that we should see it as that direct a rebuke to them. Um, but you're right. They, they don't want to jump on this. But th at this point, I mean, they're like, okay, look, we, we, we can't let this go. Like, we were this close 
to the first bloodshed we've had in Valinor. You know, this is we've we've been working on this blessed realm thing for a while now, and it's been going fine. Um, and that that you know that it, it was almost blown over there, and we can't we can't have that. Um, so clearly, this is a this is sort of a bigger deal than just them. Um, you know, sort of intervening as arbitrators in uh, in you know the the Finway family dispute because Finway can't handle it. Mike, I won't pile on Finway. I'll <laughs> I'll say that Finway, when his wife was dying, went to Manway to try to get help for her, and the the help didn't work. And for whatever reason, Finway at that point, after his wife died, should have been able to go back to Manway and say, I also need help. And he wasn't or could not do that, or for whatever reason, he was unable to do that. And for me, that's the root cause of all this. He's in, there's, it's not something to do with reason. It's sort of like a mental health depression issue where he's not recovered from this and he has no one to turn to where he should be turning to whoever, uh, Manway and saying, I also need help. There's something spiritually wrong with me and I can't find my way out of this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and see, and here I would, I, I would say this, this is, it begins to sort of come to a place where it sort of seems like this, the story is not really the st- Finway story. Um, is not really sort of holding together, um, uh, as well as, uh, uh, it's not, it's not completely holding together. That is, I'm thinking again, I'm just, the previous paragraph before, uh, the one that I read about the, the, the gossip paragraph that we were previously discussing, um, when it describes Finway's second marriage, um, she was a Vanya, close kin of Ingwe, the high king, golden-haired and tall, and in all ways unlike Muriel. Finway loved her greatly and was glad again, but the shadow of Muriel did not depart from the house of Finway nor from his heart, and of all whom he loved, Feanor had ever the chief share of his thought. So we're told that he was glad again. Um, now, but we are also told the shadow of Muriel doesn't depart. Um, so we say, thinking of the, you know, the language there of the, 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 Dave, I think you were saying that he's acting like a widower through the whole rest of his life, even though theoretically he is happily married to a wife who's, I guess, right there. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's still the shadow of Muriel is, is lying on it. Yeah. I mean, poor Finway. I, I'm now feeling guilty for, uh, a f- an ancient fictional character, but there we are. Um, Brandon, on a different note, you wanted to talk about Faust. Would you still like to talk about Faust? Sure. I was just thinking that Feanor is kind of like the, uh, um, perennial motif that we see in um, the person that goes after knowledge and kind of gets burned by um, the quest for knowledge. And I was thinking more of Prometheus and of kind of like Faust and the two different versions that we get in Faust of Shakespeare's Faust and how that was an inspiration maybe for Tolkien and how Tolkien may work. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the main the main difference that I would point to, I mean, thinking of those two sort of mythical stories, that is Prometheus and Faust, the primary difference that I'd point to is sort of where they're oriented, right? Prometheus does what he does out of, that is that both of them transgress. Prometheus transgresses out of humility. Um, that is that he focuses on, he's focused on, you know, these humans that he's created and he sees that they're going to have a hard time. And so he transgresses, uh, the boundaries and he brings fire down to them. Um, 
And so you can say he, you know, he certainly, from the perspective of the Olympian gods, apparently, uh, you know, has done wrong in doing this and has done has done what he's not supposed to do. And you could see that as being due to sort of the 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 relationship between him and his subcreation. Prometheus also, in one sense, loves too well the work of his own, of his own hands. So I can certainly see, you know, there were, there are ways in which we can see um, a bit a, a similar situation there. But see, the, even there again, there is a kind of self-forgetfulness, there's a kind of self-sacrifice in Prometheus's, um, you know, sin, uh, crime, you know, in the thing he does wrong. Um, whereas Fanor, I think, is more like Faust, although as a sub-creator, he's like Prometheus. Um, in his crime, he's more like Faust, in that what motivates Faust is uh, is the desire for power, the desire for dominion, the, the desire for knowledge. I mean, the whole thing, like, I'm going to conjure a demon, and then the demon will give me the things that I want. Um, that's uh, using a very dangerous instrument in order to get, uh, in order to to serve your yourself, essentially. Um, and that's, of course, that's not, you know, in, in a way you could say sort of, uh, uh, Fanor starts out more like Prometheus, uh, but kind of ends up more like Faust. That is, it's it's all about him at the end of the day. Um, yeah, uh, Brandon, as you point out in, in text there, Saruman goes in that direction too. Um, and we see some of the choices that Saruman makes um, and what he's willing to do um, as means to an end which he has convinced himself is a good and noble one. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's that, that the, the, the ends and means problems is... Uh, uh, is is very tricky. We're starting to run out of time, and I know that people have to go, but I want to come back to one issue that a couple of you have mentioned um, that we haven't gotten back to, and that's the smithying of weapons. A couple of people have talked about that, and I think that that's, uh, I agree that that's a really interesting and important point. Um, so I want to come back to, to, to weapon smithying. Um, Dave, you wanted to talk about this, I think? Absolutely. You know, I want to talk about whatever, pretty much. <laughs> Um, I, there were various people bringing this up. I think Jeremy was, um, the one who really wanted to talk about it and then he had to leave. Um, so I volunteered to make sure it got brought up, but I agreed with him that I, I think the smithing of weapons, um, seems to be a, uh, like a watershed moment, um, um, uh, for the elves, maybe sort of a Cain and Abel moment, sort of a there's no going back type thing. I mean, there's a lot of little sort of original sin moments scattered throughout the Silmarillion, especially these early chapters, but I, I feel like this is a particularly interesting watershed one because it, it, there really is no going back. Once they've it's sort of well, I hate to I hate to do a nuclear bomb um, um, <laughs> connection, but uh, but I knew you were going to get to World War Two sooner or later, Dave. Yeah, right. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. It's more. It's more. I don't want to say that there's a metaphor, but more the, the thought I have about the smithing of weapons here is similar to things that I've heard about people that I've heard people say about the nuclear bomb and our use of it in World War Two, namely that once we built it, we were going to use it. Right. You know, you don't build things like this, weapons, to not use them. You build them to use them. And and so I feel like the the moment that Melkor had convinced the elves to start building weapons, that was the, that was sort of not the beginning of the end, but conflict was coming. It was inevitable because once they had weapons, they almost certainly were going to start using them. There would come a moment when somebody would. So yeah. I, other no, actually, disagree, no, I I um, I think that's a great parallel. I mean, we do have. Leading up to the time when Fanor draws the sword on Fingolfin, 
we do have like a Noldor Cold War going on there, right? You know, where everyone's stockpiling weapons in secret just in case the other side starts to do something, right? So, I mean, no, I mean, I think I, I, I think it's a nifty parallel. Yeah, it's just, it seems like a, there seems to be, something has changed in the character of the elves, or the Noldor in particular, when they start using their abilities to um, build weapons. It's sort of the inverse of the um, uh, swords into plowshares type thing. Right. You know what I mean? These these were people who were relatively naive and innocent and harmonious, and now they, and they were building beautiful things, things that they were, they were doing creation as sub-creation. They were, they were building things just to make them, jewels and, and other things. Now they're building weapons, and that, I mean, that's, that's not a trivial change. That's, that's something qualitatively different going on, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, actually, uh, Elizabeth just, uh, asked a really interesting question, which I think picks up on this really well. Elizabeth just typed, why did the Vanyar and Valar not notice all this stockpiling, uh, you know, of weapons and become concerned? But I think the answer to that is that they're doing this in secret. And that, that even by itself, even if we ignore the fact that these are weapons that they're constructing, think of the difference that that shows. Uh, you know, thinking, you know, Dave, about the language that, that, that you used, how this is a watershed moment, you know, we have passed, uh, you know, like the beginning of a new epoch in the, in, in the world of the Noldor. That by itself, the secrecy shows that. I mean, we used to have the Noldor mining gems and making things, and then what did they do with them? Not only did they share them freely and give them away, they act, they like strewed them around, like they took, they, 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 they strewed them on the beach and on the streets. So that everyone could enjoy them and they're just all right there, right? Um, so even if, even if they were still only working on, you know, gems and beautiful things, but they were doing it, you know, in secret cellars and closets and things and not showing anybody else, I'd be worried, right? But of course, the fact that it's weapons, that, that's, that, that stuff all sort of goes together. Um, and I agree. I mean, I think the forging of weapons, this is clearly a crucial moment and it's, for the Noldor, a tragic moment, because this is the, the first sword forged is, in many ways, a really terrible thing. It's a perversion. It's not just like, oh, this is bad because now we're thinking about killing people and killing people is bad. Well, yeah, sure, sure, that's true. But, but it's the sub-creative thing. Now, this is the first time that they're using their sub-creative abilities, their sub-creative impulses for a destructive thing. Um, that's really bad. <laughs> that's really bad. Um, way worse than if they just picked something up and chose to use it as a weapon, or even if they found something and thought, hey, I could use that to kill somebody. Maybe I should keep that. But no, no, no. No, what they're doing is far worse than that. They're saying, let us apply our ingenuity. Let us use the gifts that Iluvatar has placed within us, the skills that we have developed through the teaching of Aule, and let's devote those things to forming weapons to kill people. Um, That's horrible. That's horrible in a really profound way. And in its way, um, see here, I want to say metaphorical again, but I don't want to use exactly that term because it's not just a metaphor. It's, It's illustrative of the nature of evil entirely. Like, there's you can draw a parallel to a Noldor, you know, in his secret basement forge, uh, forging a sword. Well, what that really looks like is Melkor off by himself, exploring the void, looking for the secret fire, taking his sub-creative gifts, 
uh, and, and deciding, uh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna introduce some discord into the music when we do the great music. Um, so yeah, that's, um, I, I, I mean, I, I think that that's a really powerful moment. And sort of the more you think about that, the more evocative that gets, I think. Um, and I think is that, that's a, it is a really important thing. And of course, Feanor, um, and again, now I come back to the sentence whose style we were looking at before, uh, in order to really look at the kind, you know, bitterly did Mokhtan rue the day. Um, you know, you've got the, 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 the master metalsmith, the master blacksmith, and he is sitting there looking at this and saying, this is not what metalsmith is about. This is not, uh, why you're supposed to be forging things. Uh, and, uh, and that's really, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, this, this. Whole, now, of course, yeah. I, I don't think we're supposed to be. Imagine Matan looking. He may well not even know um, the comment about bitterly shall he rue the day. Bitterly did he rue the day. This is later on. I mean, uh, I'm guessing Matan is not following Feanor into exile and is staying in Valinor later on. We're not told that explicitly, but that's what my money would be on. If he, uh, I don't think Matan is going back to Middle Earth. Um, but I think he's going to spend quite a bit of time second guessing himself for teaching Fanor how to, how to, uh, um, how to work metal. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Justin asks a good, really good question here. Historically, can we point to a major advance like the introduction of steel that did not start with military intents? No. And that's exactly why Tolkien was so, and in his personal views, why he was so anti-industrialism and anti-progress in the sense of technological development. Because that's exactly the argument that Tolkien kept making. Um, he said, you know, basically he would say, if we could have factories without bombs, like, I'd be a little bit more willing to, to, to talk about factories. But he says that, you know, bombs seem to be the inevitable product of factories. And of course, Justin, as you say, one could be even more stronger than that and say, like, if it were not for the desire to make bombs, we wouldn't have the factories in the first place. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, 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 I mean, that Tolkien was explicit about that. He's, he speaks very strongly on that point, uh, in on fairy stories, in like a digression in on fairy stories. He just launches off on the, on, on that subject. Um, so, so yeah, no, ex exactly. I mean, that's why he, he, he was, he was very, very nervous about that. Uh, you know, the march of progress was something that he was not especially comfortable with. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Joe, you wanted to add something? Yeah, this kind of goes back to the weapons thing. Um, I was thinking pride, maybe. Uh, you see everyone kind of starting, uh, to hoard what they have more, you know, Fanor hoarding the Silmarils. And then, um, it also mentions people walking around with emblems on their shields, which representing a sense of pride, not really in a good way either, because it's more about themselves, not necessarily about the greater good. So it just seems like, you know, more concern with yourself, loving things for, more for yourself just leads to some really bad things. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, no, I agree. I mean, and I think, I think that you can see how all of those things are kind of tied together, right? That you have <clears throat> their, their pride being shown in how they're separating themselves out. You have their pride being shown in how they are. Um, I, I agree. I love that, uh, that point that you just made, Joe, about their, their insignia, right? We didn't need insignia before. Why? I mean, hey, we were all, we were all Noldor, right? I mean, we don't need to be like, well, I'm this, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm in this gang and not in this gang. You know, we don't have, we, you know, we didn't have those kind of tensions before. We didn't need to identify ourselves that way. And now we do. 
And all of that is about, I'm separating myself from you. I am thinking of myself and not of you. Um, and you know, my focus is, is inward towards myself instead of outward towards you and towards others. Um, I am now miles away from the point of view that in, would inspire me to make something beautiful and then just throw it out in the street um, so that everybody could enjoy it. Um, and then, of course, the ultimate, the final, the sort of capstone expression of that is I'm going to I'm going to use my abilities to make a weapon um, to make a thing whose only purpose is to kill people. Um, so, uh, I mean, that's yeah, it's like it's it's the it's the natural um, it's the natural the final. Well, not quite the final, but the the, uh, you know, a, a, a very explicit sort of coming to fruition of these impulses of pride that have been that have been building within them um yeah yeah mike you wanted to add something just i love this passage and i love the way that this is the big payoff for all of these themes that tolkien's been building on i love melkor sees the lies are smoldering then the montage of them building the weapons then melkor is now kindling the lies even further and the fire is growing higher then the the character who is the spirit of fire enters the scene with his sword, sticks it in his brother's chest, and it, there's a screaming match. It comes to this really dramatic head, and then there's this terrific silence in the crowd, and then the Valar look down, and they say, oh, no, what has just happened? <laughs> I just love the, the coming together, the fire imagery, the, the, the brothers shouting at each other, and then the, the silence, and then the recognition of what has happened, I think, is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and then they, and then the, the vow are gonna, you know, have to go through and piece together the story and figure out who's responsible for this. Um, and you notice even that, even the inquiry that the vow are conduct is only, um, is only brought about, that is the necessity for that, is only brought about by the fact that people are divided into these camps. Like, you know, they, 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 they have to like interview everybody before they can figure out who's really behind this and what's going on. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jason? We've been talking a lot about, uh, what this whole episode tells us about Feanor. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about, about Fingolfin and what the, what it shows us about his character, the way his restraint in uh, reacting to Feanor and his willingness to forgive him later. And, of course, Fingolfin is later described as the most valiant of all the the elves. And um, I think that this episode here shows us that he's maybe a, a notch or two above Feanor in his character. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I agree. Um, you know, for all of the, uh, you know, for all of the very due criticism that we've been leveling at, at Feanor, um and all of the harshing that we've done on Finway, it is uh, certainly uh, important to to give Fingolfin the credit he deserves. Um, he shows the kind of strength which which is really difficult. I mean, just the kind of restraint that he shows. I, I agree, as you say, is really remarkable. Um, and yeah, he's he is called the most valiant, and it's easy to sort of think of things that will happen later, like you know, to think of the 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 moment when Fingolfin is going to is going to is going to die. I mean, the the the, the moment of his fall. Um, now that's not too much of a spoiler because the fall of Fingolfin is referenced in a chapter title, so obviously we're not supposed to. That's not supposed to be a secret. But anyway, um, uh, at the fall, you know, we might think of the fall of Fingolfin and him charging forth, and he's he's uh, you know he he's very valiant in that sense in his charging forward into battle. But I agree. I think we see the valor of Fingolfin just as much here uh, in in his restraint. You know that that's clearly a big part of 
a big part of this, a big part of who he is. Um, yeah. And even not only his restraint not to escalate the situation when, when Fanor comes in and insults him and, and draws his sword on him, but also the way in which Fingolfin forgives him quickly, forgives him later on. Um, and, you know, he's, he's, even though Fanor is not, um, even though, even though Fanor is not, uh, reciprocating <laughs> the goodwill that Fingolfin is showing, uh, very clearly. Um, yeah, I think that it's, uh, that's, that's very important. Well, and in our, uh, in our praise and appreciation of Fingolfin, we should probably stop there, uh, and we will move on to one of the great tragic moments in the Silmarillion next week. Um, so that'll be fun. Um, though that will be bright, shiny happiness compared to, um, some of the moments we'll get later on in the book. Yes, Dave is pointing that we never even got to Melkor. Well, we'll come back to that. We're going to be spending a lot of time with Melkor next week, so I think we can kind of look back at some of the things we see Melkor doing, building up to uh, his primary involvement in the next chapter. So, um, so yeah, that's that's it's an excellent point, but I think I think we can we can bring it back in next week. Anyway, thanks a lot, guys. That was uh that was that that was a lot of fun. We'll see you next week. Okay. You know, the end of this episode makes me want to give a somewhat ironic plug. After saying all those things about what a perversion of the subcreative impulse it is to turn one's hand to weaponsmithing, I'd now like to turn around and give a shout-out to the best weaponsmiths I know, Dave Delagardel and Andy Davis, the artists who run the Mad Dwarf Workshop. First, I just wanted to say, Andy and Dave, I didn't mean you! Seriously, though, anyone who hasn't seen their website should. They forge some of the most beautiful, handcrafted swords and knives I have ever seen in my life. It's funny, Andy and Dave are like the exact opposites of Feanor. Whereas he took an artistic and subcreative gift and turned it to the service of power through deadly weapons, Dave and Andy have taken deadly weapons and made them the vehicles of breathtaking artistry through their own subcreative gifts. Pretty cool, I say. So check out their site at maddwarfworkshop.com. That's all for now, and I look forward to hearing from you, Mr. Colbert. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.